church, I want to congratulate you. We've made it through 25% of the book of Romans, if we're looking at kind of this plan. And so today concludes the um, our ending in Romans 12 through 16. And so we began that journey through Romans backwards. And so we're going to have a few weeks off, and then beginning in January, we will turn our attention to Romans chapter 9 and look at Romans 9 through 11, which is a... a one of the most challenging uh, pieces of Paul's work that we see in the book of Romans, but I am looking forward to that time and being able to walk through that with you all. But today we're concluding, and I think it's fitting, Paul's words in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. You may not know this about me. You probably don't know this about me. I've never shared it publicly uh, here at this church, but I grew up, and I think it was because of my older brothers and the influence of them, on 80s music. There is something about power ballads. I still remember watching TV when there would be commercials that would come on TV and you could buy a two-set CD for $29.99 and they would play these power ballads from the 80s. I'm not the only one who's listened to these, right? I mean, you have White Snake and Poison and Mr. Big. and I mean, some of y'all know these. That's your era that like, yes, this is the music I grew up with. And some of you are like, my children listened to this, and it was absolutely atrocious. But it's what I cut my teeth on, listening to Aerosmith and Bon Jovi and all these. And I remember even in high school, a friend and I, we, we loved 80s music. And anytime one of us was going through kind of a heartbreak, we would go down to his basement, and we would turn on these power ballads, and they would talk about love. And we were 17, and we didn't know what we were doing, but we listened to this music. But it isn't just 80s power ballads that speak to what love is. Our culture says a lot about it, about that we're to love others and accept others as they are. Some really good things, I think well-intentioned, but I think often what is masqueraded as love in our culture is kind of just mere tolerance. It's not really true love. It's not biblical love. It's always, I think, perplexing to me, and I think some of you might recognize this, recognize this as well, but there's often many who say that you're to love others, and there's a slogan that goes around, and again, I'm not being political when I say this, but love trumps hate. You had people saying much of this, but then those who say that very thing hate the side that they want and, and telling them that they're not being very loving and that there's two sides and one side that says, well, you're supposed to love everyone, but that side does not love those they disagree with. They don't exhibit love themselves. And so our culture does say a lot about what love is. It's in movies, it's in songs, it's in everything that we see. But as Christians, as Christians, we base love not in feelings or what makes us happy or what our culture says, but in the work of Christ. And that's what I want you to know today, church, that the foundation to love others and embody that love is rooted in the work of Christ Jesus. It sounds simple, doesn't it? It sounds simple. But unfortunately, as Christians, we don't always embody the love of Jesus. I don't always love nor embody the love of Jesus. I think... Just to get it out of the way, we know we're all broken. We're all sinful people. If you don't know that about yourself, none of us are perfect. Sin keeps us 
from truly loving others as we should. But Christ has overcome sin. He defeated sin, and it's through him that we see the foundation of what it means to love. And it's rooted in the work of Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is going to say to those in Rome today. He's going to tell them. He's going to tell them it is love that drives them to love one another. So as we look at our text, beginning in verse 8, and just to kind of give some, some background information real quick of how this fits in, Paul as we've seen in chapter 16, he wrote to five house churches. And then in 14 and 15, we saw this conflict going on between weak and strong Christians. And then in chapter 12, we see this very idea about the mercies of God, about how we are to be transformed and not to be consumed with the patterns of this world. And then we see the body of the Christ and that every, every person has a unique role in the body of Christ. And then in Romans 12, 9 through 21, we see Paul begin to talk about love, love for those inside the church and love for those outside the church, and that we are not to take vengeance upon ourselves, but to leave it to God. And then the last two weeks, we examined Romans 13, 1 through 7, talking about Paul's words to governing authorities and how we are to relate to governing authorities, how that we are to submit to them. And the way that we can do this, as I shared last week, is is through the very idea of, of proclaiming gospel narratives in our culture, living them out. It's through patient obscurity, and it's through prophetic witness that there is a time and a place where Christians in the church need to speak truth to power. And then Paul kind of picks back up upon this thought from Romans 12, 9 through 21 about love. And he ties it into the previous passage when he had just told them to pay taxes. And what does he say in verse 8 there? He says, Owe no one anything. He's referring here to taxes, whether that be to the government or taking out debt, to owe no one anything. Now, there are exceptions to that. Yes, in the 21st century, you have car payments and mortgage payments, but the whole idea of not owing others financially. But Paul really of what he get, is getting at in verse 8. Except to love each other for the one you love, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. If you're to owe a debt to anybody, it is a debt of love. It is a debt of love that you're to owe somebody. And in that phrase there, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, we will get into this when we look at Romans really 1 through 4 and 5 through 8 when Paul articulates a, a, a deep a theological treaty on the law and what that looks like. But the one who loves fulfills the law. Something you've probably heard in the gospel. In the gospel of Matthew, actually. Chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said, what, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the law. And what Jesus does by fulfilling the law is he not only claims the authority of the law, but he also reinterprets the law through him and his work. And so Paul, 
again, is reiterating this teaching of Jesus, of what Jesus has come to do. He tells them to have no debts to anyone, but only a debt of love. And that person has fulfilled the law. Then in verses 9 through 10, Paul quotes the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 10th commandments. He then goes on to quote Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as yourself. He gives a clearer picture of all that he's saying. That the law is summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Again, words from Jesus that come in the Gospels, where Jesus says, all the law can be summed up on these two commandments, right? To love God and to love others. That's Kevin's paraphrase to Jesus' words there. But, but Jesus, is when he says that, is quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, where Deuteronomy 6.5 says you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then when Jesus quotes, he's quoting Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now to those Jews in the first century, they would have taken that command to, to love their neighbor as themselves, as fellow Jews. I'm not called to love these pagans or those who are maybe outside our group. But it's interesting that Jesus also reinterprets who our neighbor is, doesn't he? In the story of the Good Samaritan, you have the Levite and the priest as the person as they passed around to the other side of the road, not helping this person. And then along comes a Samaritan who takes it upon himself to help this individual. Jesus reinterprets who your neighbor is to expand not only to Jews, but to those also who are unclean. It's interesting, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus, in five different sections in the Gospel of Matthew, he teaches. He has these kind of long teaching moments. The first one comes in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has famous words about to You've heard that it's said to love your friends and hate your enemies, but Jesus gives a new commandment, doesn't he? It's not enough just not to not to murder somebody, but you can't have hatred or anger in your heart towards your brother. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus quotes another Old Testament book, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So what we see going on is Paul tapping into the very words of Jesus. The very things that Jesus taught, that they're to love their neighbor, that they're to love their neighbor. Jesus reinterprets who that neighbor is. And what Jesus desires of us is mercy and not sacrifices. When Jesus quotes that passage, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, he actually quotes it in two different places in the Gospel of Matthew. The first is in Matthew chapter 9, 
where we see Jesus doing something that the Pharisees did not like. He was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And they're asking him, why are you doing this? And Jesus says these words, that I came not to call the righteous but sinners, that it's the healthy who do not need a doctor but the sick. And then he goes on to say that that is our mercy and not sacrifice. So what Jesus does is he doesn't abolish the law, but he fulfills the law. He reinterprets the law through him. And thus, when he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself, that all the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two commandments. And so when Paul here, while he doesn't quote Deuteronomy 6.5, he leaves that part out, it's likely assumed. Paul is telling them as he goes on to write in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, that there is a law of Christ, the way of Christ, that these Christians, when they live lives full of mercy and grace and love towards others, they are fulfilling the law of Christ. Now we know it's impossible to embody the love of Christ perfectly all the time. We're sinful people, but everything that we do, how we love others, how we shape our lives must be seen through the lens of Jesus. So when he tells them not to have any debts to anyone, but only the debt of love, we are then to live as Jesus lived. And as what we will see in just a moment at the conclusion of this text of why we're able to do that. Paul then moves in verse 11. He says something. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So the reason we are to love one another is because of what? There's this thing of what Paul talks about in other places, that Jesus is going to return. There is this hope, this whole very idea, it's a fancy word we use in theology called eschatology, the end times. Paul is telling them that what Christ has come to do and did in the world through his crucifixion and resurrection, and what he will one day return and establish his kingdom, and we live in this interim period. I talk about this all the time, but it is pivotal to understanding the gospel. So Paul is telling you, know the time, what Christ has done. He has been resurrected. There is new life, new creation. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep that you can't live like you did before you knew Christ. That you have to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. This hope that Christ will return. We don't know when that time will be. There's a certainty of that Christ will return, but we don't know when it will be. You see, the certainty of Jesus' future return I think grounds our faith. It helps shape Paul encouraging and exhorting those people to love one another, to love their neighbors. 
the certainty of Jesus' future return, it grounds our faith. But the uncertainty of the time of his return should transform our faith. So we have certainty that Christ will return, but there is an uncertainty of the exact time. If someone tells you they know when Jesus is going to return, they're wrong. Because we don't know. Only the Father knows. But the uncertainty of the time of his return should be a time where our faith is transformed and our hope is renewed because of the certainty we have. So the very reason in Paul's logic here to love your neighbor is grounded and what Christ will do in the future. So he's telling them to wake up, to start loving other people. You've been born again. A new day has arrived. There's a new way of living. It's an upside-down world. Again, going back to the very teachings of Jesus that we see, it doesn't make sense to the world where the first will be last and the last will be first. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And so what, G- what Paul is wanting those in Rome to know in this period of waiting and expectation to live out, to practice, to order your life around of what will one day be true, in the future, that we are to live our lives of who we will one day become perfectly in God's future kingdom. And when we begin to pursue Christ in all that we do, we are a witness to the truthfulness of the gospel and a witness to what love really is. And so after telling them to love others, to embody what will one day be true for all believers, that we have this certainty of this future hope. Paul then, in verses 12b through 14, he bases all of it in the love of Christ Jesus, what he has done for us. As we continue reading in verse 12, it says, So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When he says there, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That is, believers and followers of Jesus, that you don't live by the rules of this world. That you put on the armor of light. Now, it's not really clear about what does Paul mean by the armor of light. He actually then goes on to say in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So in two different occasions, Paul is telling them to put on the armor of light and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this may be familiar. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter 6 where we read about the armor of God. Paul elaborates on that in more detail. But this was also a common metaphor, this idea of putting on 
when he says in verse 14 to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's literally, when you wake up in the morning, to pretty much clothe yourself in Jesus. So when you wake up, you put Jesus on. Sometimes some people need to go back to the house and put Jesus back on. If they haven't, I need to do that at times. But what he's getting at is this very idea of devotion and and time spent with God that you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you embody all that he's called us to live by, of what we see in Scripture through prayer and silence and community, the way we put on the Lord Jesus Christ every day. Then he says in verse 13, let us walk properly, as in the daytime, again, this idea that we're no longer held captives to the present age, but the day of the Lord, this future coming that we are to be transformed. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality. Those are things that usually take place at night. It's interesting, though, that he also adds two other things. Can you imagine those in Rome listening to this letter? Paul says, let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness. And they're like, check, check, I don't do that one. Not in sexual morality, check, I don't do that one. Not in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. What's going on in this context? These churches are doing what? They're fighting. These house churches, they're this idea of weak and strong Christians about gifts that he just talked about in Romans 12, 3 through 8, about some are given more uh, um, authority, status. And he tells them, let us walk properly, not in quarreling and jealousy, that these two things as well are just as detrimental to the body of Christ as sexual morality. He's kind of foreshadowing what he's about to say in chapter 14. But the question I have is what does it look like for us to put on Jesus? To put on the Lord Jesus Christ? To put on the armor of light? What does that look like for us? When we can the very common things, the spiritual disciplines that we see of prayer, scripture reading, community, quiet time, all of those things are ways that we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're all important. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, you know what, I wish I didn't read the Bible as much as I read the Bible. I don't wish I didn't pray as much as I prayed. It's usually kind of the opposite. Man, I, I wish I read scripture more. I wish I prayed more. It's also interesting that there are some people, no one in this church, I'm sure, there are some people, though, who have practiced these things their entire life, but they haven't shaped how they live. I mean, it's almost as if someone is a one-year-old Christian 30 or 40 or 50 times over. The gospel hasn't changed how they relate to other people, how they love other people. So what does it look like for us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? What steps can you take in this season 
of life to grow in your faith. And I thought about that. What can we do right now? We're still in the middle of a pandemic. It's Advent. What steps can we begin to take to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, the first thing that I want to tell you, church, is this. Stop trying to earn God's love and learn to just rest and to receive what God has done for you. As I was thinking about this so often, I mean, I just, I got to get on this quiet time schedule. I got to get on this next thing I got to do. I got to, I got to, I need to read more. I need to pray more. I got to do all these things. And so often that can run into a place of what we feel like we can earn God's love. But the very first thing that I think we have to realize to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to realize that you can do absolutely nothing to earn God's love. That he loves you now just as much as he did when he was dying on that cross. When you are at your worst, he still loves you. When you are at your best, he still loves you. And so often I can get in this pattern of, I got to do, I need to do this, I'm not doing enough. I begin to feel guilty and shame. But church, if I could tell you anything, if I could tell you anything, the very first thing to put on the Lord is to stop trying and to simply receive his gift that is Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. To truly be able to sit there and know that you are a beloved child of God. No matter what you do. If you don't do anything the rest of the day, he still loves you. It's the very first thing that I want you to know. The way we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second is this. Is that so often, this idea of free grace, which... The gospel, the mercies of God is free. It is a gift to be received. But you see, we have this modern notion, and we impose that upon Scripture, that, that when we give a gift, sometimes we give it without strings attached. We expect nothing in return. Well, that kind of can, when we apply that same reasoning to Scripture, it's not entirely true. That yes, the gospel, it's almost a, par- it's a paradox is what this is. That the gospel is a free gift. It can only be received. There is nothing we can do to earn it. But in response to the gospel, we live a life of obedience. That we are called to be obedient in all that we do. And yes, while the gospel can only be received, then we respond to that free gift by giving obedience to Jesus, by allowing him to come into our life to shape everything that we do. To experience the mercies of God anew. When we respond in obedience, that means we Allow the gospel to shape every aspect of our life. 
to live in such a way that our marriages for those who are both believers is a witness to the gospel. That your singleness, if you're single, should be a witness to the gospel. That when people look at you, they could say, man, how are you living your life in such a way that they want to know who God is? We respond in obedience by how we raise our kids and our grandkids in the faith. How we push back against cultural narratives in this world. By how we relate to those who are in authority. By how we exercise our gifts in the body of Christ. The way we put on the Lord Jesus Christ is by how we respond the free gift of Jesus. It is setting aside time on a regular basis, whatever that is, to commune with the Father. Not because you have to, not because you earn God's love, but because of that you are responding out of an overflow of joy and gratitude and thankfulness because of what Christ has done through you and for you. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ by how we orient our lives around the life of Jesus, around his crucifixion and his resurrection, through suffering and hope. Grace is a free gift that can only be received. I hope in this season of Advent and still in the middle of a pandemic, that you likely have lots of thoughts that that's the thing you hear the best. To receive Jesus, to receive his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, that he loves you where you are. That Jesus never wants to leave us where we are. He wants to transform us. He wants to change us in the way we are changed. through obedience by orienting our lives around him not being shaped by the patterns of this world but being transformed by the renewing of our mind the foundation to love others and embody that love is rooted in the work of Christ Jesus what he has done on the cross for you and for me. We receive and then are commanded to go and do likewise. The foundation to love others and embody that love is rooted in the work of Christ Jesus. Let us pray together. Father, we come before you. I pray, Lord, in this time, that whatever struggles or burdens, whatever guilt or shame that anyone is carrying in this place, God, I pray, Lord, that you will take that from them, that they will be able to sit at the foot of the cross and see and experience 
your love that was poured out for them that day. God, I pray for those in whatever season they're in right now, God, that you are speaking to them, that they can respond in obedience to you. Lord, we thank you for all that Jesus has done for us. You've made possible for us to live as followers of you in this world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.